Hey, everybody. During today's conversation with National Book Award-winning children's author William Alexander, we talk quite a bit about the essays in Ursula Le Guin's collection, Cheek by Jowl, whose subtitle is Talks and Essays on How and Why Fantasy Matters. Alexander mentions while we're talking that he feels like this collection in particular didn't receive the attention it merited. It doesn't get engaged with as much as her other remarkable essay collections, even though it is just as good and quite unique and distinctive. And that is because it is largely about children's literature and thus more easily dismissed or overlooked. I suspect there are many people listening to today's episode of Crafting with Ursula who are here specifically because it is about children's literature. Maybe even this being the first episode of the series that you are engaging with. But I also suspect that there are many people who've been listening to the past six episodes of the series on creating alien cultures with Becky Chambers, or on science fiction as social justice with Adrienne Marie Brown, or on ambiguous utopias with Kim Stanley Robinson, who arrive at today's conversation wondering, perhaps similarly to those who skip the collection, Cheek by Jowl, if this will be their cup of tea. If you aren't children, or parents, or even if you are, why tune into a conversation on literature geared toward immature human beings, you might ask? What could be gained from this? I could try to respond to this imagined unasked question by saying that this engagement between Will and I about Le Guin on the topic of writing for children is one that engages with history, philosophy, anthropology, science, that this topic intersects with fantasy, but also with theater, with Plato and Aristotle and Shakespeare, that it raises age-old questions about the imagination, but also is incredibly relevant to our current-day battles in schools, not just about what is acceptable literature, but also about what history we teach or don't teach and how we teach it. But I suspect this argument, this argument that you should really listen to a conversation on children's literature because it really is very adult, would not be the argument Le Guin herself would make. She, I suspect, would do the reverse. Not only start with the child, but center the child. Center the unique intelligence of children. And only from there have us arrive at questions that should interest any writer, any human really, about how our fears of the imaginative connect not only to the rise of realism, but even further to the diminishment of the non-human to the rise of the human-centered world, the Anthropocene, that perhaps the answers to many things, from how we imagine stories to how we imagine societies, can be found in the ways children themselves do these very things. I haven't been asking guests for crafting with Ursula whether they'd want to contribute to the bonus audio archive, mainly because, unlike the main show, where I do all the preparation and the guests show up to talk about their own book, which of course they know very well. With these Le Guin-centric conversations, I am co-creating these episodes with the guests. They're doing a lot of work themselves and bringing these conversations into being. 
But William Alexander, today's guest, he reached out of his own accord, wanting to contribute something nevertheless. For the bonus audio, Will describes a writing exercise that he finds particularly useful in both creating and developing characters in his own stories, called Smoke. And Smoke is likely quite different than most writing exercises you've encountered. It is playful, associative, even theatrical, and dare I say, childlike, in the best of ways. But an approach that he finds far more useful than a linear or reason-based approach to making characters come alive on the page. This joins a ton of great bonus audio from past guests on Between the Covers, from a craft talk by Marlon James, to readings by everyone from N.K. Jemison to Daniel Jose Older. And Older's reading is particularly in the spirit of today's conversation, which touches on questions of orality versus the written, and the power of text being read aloud. This joins all sorts of other possible perks and rewards of joining the Between the Covers community and becoming yourself a listener supporter. From rare Le Guin collectibles, to the book Ursula and I did together, Conversations on Writing, to the Le Guin tribute anthology, Dispatches from Anaris. You can check this all out and much more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's Crafting with Ursula with William Alexander. The connection between what I do as a writer, making worlds out of words, and what my wizards do, using words to kind of remake the world and change the world and cast spells. That magic in Earthsea is word magic. Obviously, to me, words do make magic in a sense. They make something new or different. What I'm after ultimately is to make something beautiful. Just like a potter making a pot or a sculptor carving a statue. Art has to do with making something that is satisfying and beautiful. I see my job as as holding doors open or opening windows, but who comes in and out the doors? What you see out the window? How do I know? My responsibility is just to keep the mind open, not close it off. That's enough right there. Welcome to today's episode of Crafting with Ursula. Today's guest, William Alexander, is a writer of science fiction, fantasy, and other unrealisms, mainly, though not exclusively, for young readers. Alexander studied theater and folklore at Oberlin College, English at the University of Vermont, and creative writing at Clarion's Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Workshop. He teaches and has served as faculty chair at the Vermont College of Fine Arts program in writing for children and young adults, the first MFA in the country to focus exclusively on writing for young readers. Ursula K. Le Guin, in her review of Alexander's first book, Goblin Secrets, says, It is outstanding in this increasingly crowded and imitative field for the unlabored imaginative authority and completeness of its setting. 
and for the fine, vivid English it's written in. It's an endearing book, and there's something else to it that I can't put words to, a haunting quality, a sense of depth, of unspoken further implication in the adventures and the characters, which is its real magic. I wish I could have read it when I was 11. Subtle, tricky, funny, beautiful. More, please, Will Alexander. And the world chimed in to agree with Le Guin, with Goblin Secrets winning the 2012 National Book Award in Young People's Literature, where in his acceptance speech, Alexander quoted Le Guin herself. He followed Goblin Secrets with a sequel, Ghoulish Song, finalist for the 2014 Mythopoetic Award in Children's Literature, given annually to outstanding works in the fields of myth and fantasy. With Ambassador and Nomad, his second two-book series, Alexander switched to science fiction, where his new protagonist, Gabe Fuentes, who typically spent his summers taking care of his toddler siblings, his pet iguana, fox, and parrot, and building model rockets with his best friend, he spends this summer, the one where an alien encounter leads to an invitation for Gabe to become Earth's ambassador to the galaxy, balancing the demands and perils of just that, but also with the risks and dangers of his undocumented parents and their looming fear of deportation. Or, as Kirkus in its Star Review says, an interstellar embassy, alien assassins, galactic mass extinctions, these are Gabe's small problems. Ambassador was an international Latino Book Award finalist, Minnesota Book Award finalist, and winner of the Eleanor Cameron Award for Excellence in Children's Science Fiction. In his acceptance speech, he thanks Sandra Cisneros and Carlos Fuentes, and again, Ursula K. Le Guin. Alexander follows this two-book series with yet another, a properly unhaunted place and a festival of ghosts. A properly unhaunted place, a New York Times editor's choice, a Kirkus Best Book of the Year, a Shelf Awareness Best Book of the Year, and a finalist for the Sybils Award for books that represent diversity, inclusion, and appropriate representation for children and teens, is about the story of Rosa Ramona Diaz, whose family has moved to the only ghost-free town in the world, even though her mom is a librarian who specializes in ghost appeasement. The New York Times Book Review says, This novel explores the very idea of books, the purpose of libraries, and the rather large theme of why the present must embrace a relationship with the past. It reminds us that if we are not brave enough to live alongside the haunting past, then we risk becoming nothing more than ghosts, haunting the earth, but never inhabiting it. As if this were not enough, William Alexander also writes short stories and has two recent ones in disability-themed collections. His story of theatrical magic found objects can be found in the anthology Unbroken, 13 stories starring disabled teens. And his truly amazing story, The House on the Moon, appears in Uncanny Magazine's Disabled People Destroy Science Fiction and has since had two further lives in audio, with Erica Ensign's reading of it for the Uncanny podcast and with none other than LeVar Burton reading it on his show. Or as Alexander puts it, the man who played Geordie LaForge performed some words that I wrote to revisit science fictional disability and my inner 11-year-old wonders where we can possibly go from here. 
Well, it's hard to follow LeVar Burton, and I won't try, but where William Alexander's inner 11-year-old has ended up next is here on Crafting with Ursula to talk about writing children's literature, about Le Guin's deep engagement with both the writing of it herself, but also the meaningfulness of doing so. Welcome to Crafting with Ursula, William Alexander. Thank you, David. That was tremendous. And on a bad day, I'm going to have to go back and just listen to that bio to <laughs> feel legit. All right. Well, before we start talking about the, um, the, the text that we've put between us to engage with, just orient us a little bit to you, um, your first encounter with Le Guin as a reader, uh, and then about your engagement with her in the world. Sure. Um, well, I've, I very clearly remember my first engagement. I was 11. That's important. That number came up a couple of times in your introduction. It'll, I'm sure, come up a couple more. I was 11 years old, and um, a school librarian handed me a Wizard of Earthsea, and then everything changed. And that's a familiar story. Reading so many tributes and eulogies that popped up everywhere in, in 2018 after Ursula passed, so many authors talked about reading A Wizard of Earthsea and how, and how that changed everything for them. And they didn't always mention an age, but it, at least in every example that I could find, every time they did mention a specific age, it was always 11. Mm. I know that um, in 2014, when Neil Gaiman was giving an introduction for the big Lifetime Achievement National Book Award that Ursula was given that year, he mentioned reading. A Wizard of Ursi at 11 years old and how that changed him. Um, I know Pam Knowles mentioned it. Everybody, everybody seemed to have found it at exactly that time. So um, yeah, along with everybody else, I first read Earthsea then and found it transformative in a way that only a book at that age can be, that the impact, I mean, like Shining Mieville said of Joan Aiken, the impact is like nothing else ever when you read the right book at the right time at that age. Um, the, the level of aesthetic response to it is, um, is transformative. And it's a book that I kept returning to later, which doesn't always happen. You know, there, there are the books, there are the stories, there are the things that we loved and that we remember loving. And that sometimes we either know that we shouldn't revisit or we revisit them and are disappointed um, that, we've changed so much that we just can't go back to wherever we were when that story was important to us. And probably more than any other book, these books continued to be um, important and influential in different ways. One of the very first ways that it was, was embarrassing. Let's, we're going to start with some embarrassment. <laughs> can't wait. <laughs> It's, it's really, I mean, it's really awful to, to think back on this and to put it into these terms, but, but also important, I think. So I devoured the first book. I immediately wanted the second book and was displaced and disappointed by having shifted protagonists that I wanted to wander the world with Sparrowhawk some more. I wanted a more direct sequel to that first book. And instead, we're in a very different place from a very different point of view. And our protagonist, you know, my surrogate self in this world was nowhere to be seen until at least halfway through the story. 
when he shows up as a secondary character. Mm -hmm. And that was not what I expected. I was initially very disappointing. And the thing that was particularly wrenching, um, and this is the embarrassing part, um, is that the main character is a girl, that it was a female protagonist. And that, to 11-year-old me, that was not something I would have chosen. And it, it felt dangerous. I mean, masculinity is poorly defined at the best of times. And it was already a little shaky since I come from a multicultural household with my own family traditions that merged in my family, um, had very different definitions of masculinity. There was, there were, there were already contradictions. But in general, as you know, it, as it is defined on the middle school playground, um, or rather not, it's only negatively. It's just one must avoid all girly things mm-hmm. that you don't, the masculinity is never defined. You're just punished if you stray from it. That was the way of it on the playground when I was 11. And to read a book and leap into a world and inhabit the perspective of a girl was definitely straying outside (laughs) the acceptable boundaries of not yet pubescent masculinity as it was enforced. Mm. It felt actually dangerous. Like I was, like I was tempting a a playground beatdown if anybody ever found out about it. Um, And I had to make a choice and then a private choice. You know, nobody else was there. I'm reading. I'm just reading to myself, but like, okay, to, to come back to this world, to come back to Earthsea, to learn more about it, which I desperately wanted. I had to be a girl. I had to accept that role. I had to become a girl to know more about the story. And that was a, like, that was the deal. Those, those were the terms. And you were already hooked as a boy in book one. So it's different than if book one, um, maybe you wouldn't have kept going if if um, you hadn't already been enticed in, by the spell of, of the Wizard of Mercy. Exactly. And it wasn't a conscious choice at all. I mean, I, I wasn't consciously avoiding books that starred girls. It was just accepted reality. An accepted reality which persists. I mean, every professional conference I have ever been to will have a panel for for educators, for teachers and librarians, at least one, maybe several panels about enticing reluctant readers, how to how to write books for reluctant readers, how to market books for reluctant readers, how to be the ones who actually put a book into the hand of reluctant readers. Coddling stubborn young masculinity seems to be a huge part of that strategy that like books can be for boys too. That is still today the way that we the way that we gender books and and separate them out. And discussing this, talking about talking about gender and gendered books and my own embarrassing reluctance and response as a young reader, um, I think it's important to acknowledge a couple of things just about this field that children's literature is children's literature is a field created by women, maintained by women, um, primarily practiced. Uh, by people who generally identify as women. Um, I think cisgendered men are like a very small percentage. Um, I'm going to guess 10%. That's a, that's a number I've heard tossed around. Um, I don't have any rigor behind those statistics, but there are 
comparatively few men in this field than, than women. And I think that's important to acknowledge as I describe and attempt to represent the field, as I, um, as I serve in this context as an ambassador from children's literature, um, discussing Ursula's work in particular, there's a, there's a, there's a feminist point to be made that, um, that men are a very small percentage of those who write for children, though a disproportionately large percentage of those honored for it. Mm. That simply by being in this field, we get a lot of attention. Um, there's a potentially embarrassing anecdote to share um, about what that's like. So when our first child was born, in a really amazing and progressive nurse midwife unit of the hospital, all of the nurses and the midwives at, at, at the top of their field were positively aglow with the male lactation consultants who worked at the hospital and told us over and over again, he's on rotation. If we're very, very lucky, we can get this male lactation consultant to, you know, help with the tips on the initial breastfeeding. My wife was not as excited about, um, and as it turned out, the lactation consultant was a woman who came to talk to us. She was great. She was very, very good at this. No one was singing her praises in the hallway. Right. She was just doing the work and doing it well. And that is often the metaphor um, I come back to for what it's like to be, to be a man, to be a cisgendered male author person in this field, that simply by existing in this field, we are lauded as extraordinary and end up, whether we lean into it or not, taking up a lot of space. Well, I want to I want to return to this later when we actually like uh, attend to the text that we've chosen, because there's some really great ways in which Le Guin deals with this question of masculinity that you've pointed out to me. I want to step back from this question of gender and ask what's perhaps a naive general question about children's literature as sort of a way into what we talk about. So I read your your National Book Award winning debut of middle grade fiction, Goblin Secrets, and I loved it. However, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you. Um, when I was reading it, it wasn't as if I was revisiting an early developmental stage of my life. I, I feel like I genuinely loved it as an adult, the characterization, the suspense, the themes, and the world you imagined. And on the flip side, I read your story for Uncanny, The House on the Moon, which I believe was written for adults, or at least that's my guess. But I could totally imagine a young teenager or a preteen loving it equally as well. Um, when Jason Reynolds was doing his New York Times by the book interview, he was asked a similar question to one I'm going to ask you of what distinguishes what audience age-wise you're writing for. So this is what Reynolds said to that question. I'm still trying to figure that out. I'm working on some adult fiction right now, and based on what I'm learning from my edits, it has more to do with tone than anything else. 
My issue is that people create this massive chasm between the two, which sometimes feels like a way to diminish the work written for young people. Because of my disdain for that, I've tried really hard to push against the dividing line, but ultimately I'm learning there is a difference. I'm just not sure it's as drastic as we try to make it. With a shift in tone, Jesmond Ward's Salvage the Bones might have been a young adult novel, and that would make it different, certainly, but not a lesser work. Putting aside for a moment the question of children's literature being lesser, which is something I do want to talk to you about, um, what distinguishes for you as a writer literature for young readers from literature for adults? I'm so glad you gave Jason's answer to that because I'm, I'm likewise still figuring this out. The first thing the question reminds me of was the process of discovering that I was writing for children and young adults, which was not immediate. Um, I knew that, that I would write science fiction and fantasy. That was my, my goal and intention. I, I find myself incapable of realism. That's just not how my brain works. Um, I've tried. Ghosts show up. It doesn't, it simply doesn't happen. Um, but I noticed that all of the stories, as I was just starting out, writing stories, sending them to magazines, you know, occasionally getting one published, the stories that stuck with me that seemed to still have spark when, when I looked back on them, every one of them had a young protagonist. And I had not written them with a young audience in mind, but it was that perspective that just had spark, that just had something I was drawn to, something that I kept returning to um, over and over and over again. Uh, they were always 11. You know, every now and then they'd, they'd be 12, I guess. But um, it, was, it was a perspective I kept coming back to. I think it was when I needed books most. That was when I needed the most. And so that, and, and writing is just really active reading. I am still reading the books that I wanted to be reading then. I'm still writing the books that I wanted then. And, and writers in my field say that a lot, that we're, we're, writing, we're writing what we needed at the time. We're still writing for ourselves as an ideal reader at that time and providing what we needed at that time, especially if we didn't have it and couldn't find it and didn't have access to it. And with that comes respect. It comes, or it should. Anyone who is scornful of that age and yet writing for that age is probably a horrible person, but also <laughs> like right. and there's right. stuff to unpack about their relationship to themselves at that time. That basic respect, that refusal to condescend or to speak down to is, I mean, I'm sure we'll come back to that as we talk about, I mean, as we talk about the things that Ursula said throughout her career about children and about writing for children um that like that thou shalt not condescend like that is mm -hmm. that is the first and foremost commandment well let's let's go there for a minute i feel like that would be another place to um sort of set the stage before we go more fully specifically into Le Guin is positioning of the genre uh, in the world at large. And I have a question for you. As I told you in our correspondence, I've been watching videos of Le Guin when she went to Australia in 1975 as the guest of honor at AussieCon, the World Science Fiction Convention that in that year was held in Australia. And you can watch her speech 
And you can also watch a panel she was on about children's literature. And it's interesting because she's on a panel not with other well-known children's authors, but with mostly academics whose focus was children's literature. At the time, both genres were denigrated. Science fiction and fantasy was a, was considered a denigrated genre. And also at the time, children's literature was denigrated. Um, I knew prior to preparing for today that even though Le Guin writing both inside and outside the genre of sci-fi and fantasy, that she fought the battle for sci-fi and fantasy her entire life, that it that its importance to literature was vast uh, and it was a struggle of immense importance to her. But it's a battle, I think, that now, maybe not completely won, but largely won, um, even if her dream, her dream at AussieCon, that year was that Philip K. Dick would be shelved next to Charles Dickens. Even if that hasn't happened, we can see a lot has changed. But I didn't really realize until preparing for today how much she was also fighting this battle with children's literature, a battle that I think overlaps with her battle with sci-fi and fantasy respectability, but also in some ways diverges from it. On the one hand, Fantasy written for adults is often denigrated by calling it a genre for children. And even during that panel in 1975, they kept jokingly referring to a panel that had occurred earlier in the conference of adult fantasy, I think, and the way that they were um, protecting themselves from being looked down upon as fantasy writers was by distinguishing themselves from kitty lit uh, the lesser literature so in a sense uh, one denigrated genre trying to be less denigrated by denigrating the other um but i wondered if you if we flash forward today to today uh, a half century later and i wondered if you could orient us to your perspective on how you think things are the same or different from then with regards to children's literature at large, but also in relationship to, to fantasy literature? Oh, such a huge, rich question. And everything has changed and nothing has changed. I mean, every, this, every fight that we've ever fought, we're still fighting, as it turns out. In so many respects, with regard to science fiction and fantasy, things have changed. There is respectability, there is acknowledgments and awards and conversations among the literati about the lineage and possibility and respectability of unrealist modes. All of that is great. Um, there's acknowledgement that for most of human history, fantasy has been the dominant mode of telling stories and that realism was only considered the most important kind of storytelling for what, half the 20th century, if that. And that blip in our history is over. and fantastical modes have reestablished themselves as a tremendously important part of how we tell stories and how we have always told stories that has certainly changed i mean that that's that's a big difference from 50 years ago when ursula spoke on those panels at the same time the fights that we are always having and sometimes about adjacent modes adjacent conversations, adjacent media 
these go way back. And part of it is baked into the language itself that to denigrate a mode of storytelling, to infantilize it is through the very nature of the word. To consider it juvenile is to associate it with children, which writing for children is inherently juvenile as a descriptive rather than a pejorative sense, but you can't untangle that. You can't, um, you can't pry that apart. And science fiction and fantasy, but especially science fiction, um, if, we're, if we're thinking hard science fiction that would like to define itself as serious topics and serious people in a serious imaginative space, separate from anything twee and associated with small people with wings in some English countryside. Science fiction has worked so hard to prove that they are grown-ups who write about grown-up things. And they have been denigrated as juvenile for so long that there is a sensitivity there, that there's a deeply foundational baked in sensitivity to, in order to be taken seriously, one must prove one's maturity. And Ursula had a word for this. Yes. I love it. She coined, I don't know if you were going to bring it up later, but I have to bring it up now. She called it maturismo, a word for anyone responding defensively when they feel that their that their maturity um usually masculine that their manhood and maturity has been in some way insulted and of course related to to macho to machismo specifically and as i understand it the difference between macho and machismo that macho is simply and i mean in english and in spanglish we sometimes use them interchangeably but macho just means honorable conduct coded masculine mm honor and responsibility generally and traditionally associated with a masculine role. That's mm -hmm. macho. Machismo is different. Machismo is this defensive posturing of someone working too hard and protesting a little too much about their own um, sense of masculinity in the world. And and that's just painful. And that's, and it's that kind of defensiveness, that kind of posturing, that kind of unearned authority, and that kind of lashing out that makes it such a perfect, such a perfect word, such a perfect neologism, maturismo. So if we think about you having been enticed by Wizard of Earthsea and then finding yourself confronted um, maybe with your inherited machismo hmm. um, when you when you uh, open up the tombs of Atuan and have to decide what choice you're going to make. Uh, I don't know if that's the right words. That's different than the machismo, perhaps, but maybe connected to it, because how are you going to be seen as a soon-to-be boy becoming a man if you're reading this girly book? Oh, yes. That was the trap. That was the brilliant, fantastic trap. Because the first book is such a perfect rite of passage. And it satisfies so many masculine ex expectations of coming of age, of becoming more powerful, though it's also a critique. It's a critique of so many of, a critique of young testosterone uh, in, its, in its pride um, and arrogance and the damage one. I mean, the entire story is addressing and taking responsibility for the damage that that young machismo can do in the world. It is both a celebration of a young masculine role, but it's also a critique of that role. 
and it's also a reckoning um, and an insistence on paying attention to that and taking responsibility for the damage that that can be done in that celebration. Mm. Um, so all of that, all of that was important. I mean, that that book taught me more about the kind of person I wanted to become and what I might have to contend with along the way than any other book in a very crowded field of fantasy coming of age stories. Yeah. And and yes, you're absolutely right that in that there is still there is still that celebration of masculinity that is then immediately denied. And a, a displacement and a decentering is is required immediately after that. I do want to return to this question of fantasy in relationship to change because she keeps demanding us to to reconsider as she reconsiders the world she she created but spend another moment with the panel discussion and something that really struck me about it again so we're talking 50 years ago now um, but you could really tell how deeply Le Guin respected the child reader on their own terms their intelligence their ability to engage with the imagination and yet still know what is true. And you, you quoted to me one line from her book, Cheek by Jowl, hmm. which is her collection of essays on fantasy. Um, Children don't mind you talking over their heads. They're used to it and used to figuring it out. Anything is better than being talked down to. And then you suggested when we were corresponding that actually children are better at navigating circumstances they don't understand, or even circumstances they don't expect to understand than adults. I was hoping you could elaborate on this a little bit. I wonder, for instance, if not only are children good at knowing what is real and true within a fiction, and perhaps better than adults at being in an unresolvable uncertainty, Mm. Um, but also I wonder if fantasy as literature helps us exercise that muscle of being in the unknown without resolving it into meaning and navigating it. So maybe you could just spend a moment with us about the intelligence of the child reader, which in some ways I think you and Le Guin are suggesting is more intelligent in certain facets the child reader they've they've had so much less time to delude themselves keats had a phrase for this um it's a really awkward phrase i don't like it very much but you know it keeps coming up it's useful negative capability Mm -hmm. um from i believe he wrote that in a in a letter to one of his brothers that um the the capacity to be in uncertainty to navigate uncertainty in a situation that that you don't understand um and this is a very common quality among 11-year-olds and a very rare one among adults, that adulthood seems to require the delusion that we know what's going on. It's very alarming to, uh, to realize that we don't. Kids don't expect to know what's going on, but they have to move through the world anyway. They have to navigate the world anyway. They have to make choices they are constantly encountering something that they do not yet understand. They're constantly, I mean, just on the level of vocabulary, I have only ever had an adult reader express annoyance that there was a word that they did that was unfamiliar to them in something that they read, that an adult can feel insulted by that, can feel like, you know, like you're putting on airs 
what are, what are you doing throwing these fancy words at me? Um, happens to kids all the time. It's not insulting. And you can usually pick up the meaning from context, or you could look it up later, or you just file it away, or you ignore it. But you can take it in stride. You can encounter something that you have no familiarity with, no idea what to do with yet. And you either pause and wrestle with it for a bit, or you just keep going. That kind of neuroplasticity, that kind of ability to interact with and navigate uncertainty is a near universal quality of kids. Um, there, I mean, you mentioned ambassador in mostly we've talked about fantasy and I, as, as we should, because, um, Ursula's writing for children, she wrote a great deal of fantasy and science fiction, but her writing for children was primarily fantasy. Um, but one of the words that was the, the initial seed of my, my science fiction books, um, is the word neoteny, which comes from biology and it means, the retention into adulthood of juvenile traits, and they can be physical traits, they can be, or they can be behavioral traits like curiosity, empathy, um, the ability to learn new things, the ability to make new social connections. All of those are juvenile traits. And luckily humans are a neotenous species that there are things we can retain. Mm. And other, I mean, every, every social form of life while young, they're curious, they're empathetic. They like learning new things. They like figuring new things out. Um, and watching sheep in a field, the baby sheep are running around sniffing and tasting and bang and checking out everything they possibly can. The adult sheep are chewing. They're just chewing. They stand there and they're chew. They, they're done. They're done <laughs> learning new things. Um, and it's, it's a perfectly good survival strategy in a stable environment. If nothing changes, then if you learn enough to make it to adulthood, you don't need to learn anything more. If things aren't that stable, then it's helpful to keep some of these other traits. So this, so neoteny is, okay, the whole thesis there is neoteny is necessary for our survival, which is why we should read Kidlet. But this, this quality of being able to encounter something new and not freak out about it is why in my science fiction novels, all ambassadors between galactic civilizations are all juvenile. They have to be. I mean, every fox and hound story, look in my weird collection of pets that would usually eat each other, they get along. It's because they met as kids. Mm -hmm. It's always because they met as kids. And, and there was plasticity then about who else qualified as a person. Mm -hmm. What other form of life is it even possible to communicate with? And then you have your, you know, you have your kitten snuggling up with your pet alligator and their, and their family. So that same plasticity, that same porous boundaries of possibility apply to the young reader. And they don't, like, they don't mind encountering words they've never heard before. They don't mind encountering ideas they've never heard experience before that happens all the time and that's the time when it is most important to do it before those boundaries start to calcify um they need to be stretched that sense of possibility needs to expand and that's when we are hungry to expand it well we were going to have you read uh a piece you wrote on your website called ursula and iris and maybe this could be a time for you to um 
uh, as part of a, an introduction to it. Just tell us a little bit about uh, Ursula, the person in, in, in your life. We became friends, which still feels just amazing to say out loud. Um, we corresponded for a while. Little things. I wrote, I wrote a review of Cheek by Jowl in, in Rain Taxi magazine um, that she liked because it's a, it's a brilliant book that received very little attention uh, relative to um, her other books of essays, possibly because she was writing about Kidlet in that book. And so it uh, vanished, relatively speaking, mm -hmm. compared with many of her other books. But she, she liked my review. Um, and that may have been, that may have been the, our first sort of professional contact. What's so great about that book is, you, you know, you say well, no one's reading it because it's about um, kid lit and that in and of itself shouldn't be a reason not to read it. But it also is. And I'm not saying this to to redeem it, but it also is very much an engagement with anthropology and history and language development and all sorts of things yes. intertwined with this question of the written and the oral and um Mm -hmm. It's got some amazing pieces in it. Yes. And I mean, what fits into so many other conversations that, that, that you've had here on the show is um, there's also so much in that book about the non-human. Right. And the role of the role of non-human characters and perspectives in, in our narrative traditions. And as that has been denigrated, um, she has a line in there about our our increasingly impoverished single species world that as non-human perspectives have been increasingly minimized. And one of the few places where you can just freely get away with it and nobody gives you a funny look um, is in children's literature. You write you write animal characters and you write from animal perspectives in in books for kids. And it's one of the many things that has been infantilized at it as it has been restricted to infants. And there's a double move in that always. And you find it in so many other things that have been denigrated, including comics, including theater, including just that, that something is considered juvenile and also unfit for children. At the same time, there's a paradox like this is silly and foolish and ridiculous and only fit for children. And at the same time, it is dangerous and unfit for children. And that's been the bizarre perspective that at least here in America, we've had towards comics for ever. Um, and that should have ended by now, but it hasn't. There's so many different rabbit holes we could jump down at this point, but just to tie it back to fantasy and to the questions you started us off with, that this, um, this denigrating and this marginalizing of, of different narrative modes and topics and where they belong and to whom they belong and if they deserve any respect and if they overlap with anything else. Um, the, the denigration itself has a familiar rhetoric and a familiar paradox to it that has always been there, whether we're talking about fantasy in the middle of the 20th century, whether we're talking about comics in the middle of the 20th century or today on a school board, whether um, we're talking about children's literature, whether we're talking about theater hundreds or thousands of years ago. Yeah. Well, let's, 
let's hear Ursula and Iris. Yeah, I got sidetracked leading up to this. So we corresponded and then and then we met. I got to meet her a few times and and we continued to correspond. I mean, I had young children and she loved children. And so sometimes we're talking about literature and sometimes I'm just sending her goofy pictures of my kids because <laughs> um, that's what you do. And a lot of our correspondence, a lot of our friendship was talking about kids, both in general and also specific ones that I would send her pictures of. And we had a like running, we had running jokes about Iris in particular since she was an, an infant. And that's all the lead up I'll give. Okay. All right, Ursula and Iris. Um, my friend and favorite author died today. Your book shaped my brain, I told her. We were in her kitchen at the time drinking tea. That's terrifying, she said. And then she put a splash of bourbon in the tea. Ursula found it significant that I first read A Wizard of Earthsea at 11 years old. It's a prime, she said via email. I am slightly mystical about primes. Also slightly mystical, I guess, about kids of 11. It's a hinge age. They're still absolutely children, but their world is widening out in all ways. Their awareness enlarging with it. Their self is defining itself. There's way too much hokum about the wisdom of the child, blah, blah. But I do often find kids of about 11 awesome in their mixture of innocence, patience, readiness, wariness, openness. They sometimes have a wonderful poise, which they'll lose when their hormones really start knocking them around. End quote. Ursula died at the age of 88, a multiple of 11. I wish she could have waited for 99 instead. She collaborated a few times with my youngest daughter, Iris. Together, they told stories about monkeys and cats. And Iris sent her a very short story two years ago. Quote, there once was a human who wanted a wolf for a pet. Then the wolf ate the human. End quote. Ursula turned it into this nursery rhyme. I don't want that puppy dog, Wilful William said. I don't want a dog at all. I want a wolf instead. Oh, William, said his father. That is an unwise choice, for wolves are wild as wild can be, and they eat little boys. But Wilful William wailed and roared to raise the roof and stamped his foot and shouted, I only want a wolf. And so his parents bought a wolf, a large and handsome pup. And as soon as it saw William, it ate him. I am sorry that the protagonist is named William, she told me. Please don't take it personally. He had to be William because he was willful. Willard, Wilson, etc. just didn't sound right. Iris is five years old now. I told her that Ursula died today. I'm going to go invent a machine that makes dead people alive again, she announced, and then went into the playroom to get started. She's still there, right now, reinventing the very first science fiction novel. I like to think that Ursula would be proud of her. I love that so much. It had to be a William. It did too. It had to. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't think she was really sorry. No, I don't either. <laughs> and that, I mean, you quoted the review. I guess we like our, our correspondence and then our friendship began by reviewing each other. Yeah. And that line that is still, I mean, that still gets me. Um, just remembering when she said, I wish I had read it at 11. I wish I could have read it at 11. Mm-hmm. I mean, without time travel, that's as close to reciprocal as that. Right. The uncanniness <laughs> of your, you both loving that number and finding the, the significance in that number. And knowing that that was the right time. Yeah. But she remembers that time well enough that she, she remembered that time well enough that she knew that she didn't forget it. Well, after I talked to Karen Joy Fowler, um, you emailed me and said, I'm still mulling over the folkloric wisdom in your conversation with Karen and looking back at the first page of Earthsea. And there's so much to unpack in the opening paragraph. I love the reversal of literate chauvinism, describing the oral tradition as authoritative and the written novel as some kind of marginal knowledge, a minor story that all the songs and sagas overlooked. The other part of this page that always jumps out at me is the word dragon lord and the misleading way it implies domination. Ged doesn't correct that assumption until the tombs of Atuan, quote, it's not a trick of mastering the dragons as most people think. Dragons have no masters. The question is always the same with a dragon. Will he talk with you or will he eat you? If you can count upon his doing the former and not doing the latter, why, then you're a dragon lord. And then it's back to you again where you say, I've always loved that bit. To have conversations with dragons, we need to be more interesting than edible. Um, Perhaps we can take this as a launching off point to discuss some of Le Guin's writings about children's literature, but also the figure of the dragon, which is very important to Le Guin, not only in her fiction, but also in her essays and her philosophical thinking about fantasy and children's literature beginning probably with her iconic 74 essay, Why Are Americans Afraid of Dragons? Which, as we both noticed, opens with her going to the children's room in the library and asking for The Hobbit and being told by the librarian that they keep that in the adult section because escapism isn't good for children. So maybe this resonates back with this question of something being for children but also not for children at the same time you were talking about earlier but thinking of your thoughts on dragons and dragon lords and thinking of this essay about the american fear of dragons do you have any further thoughts on what dragons represent to Le Guin? and do you think this is somehow connected to her also trying to restore the importance of oral traditions and or pre-literature as you sort of hinted at earlier the the literatures we we hear before we read so many thoughts so many thoughts okay um with the caveat that and this is this is the last line of her introduction to tales from earthsea that one of the last books of earthsea is a collection of short stories and the last line of her introduction to that collection is nobody can understand a dragon. 
So I think that's important as a starting point that before. I always thought of it as the end point. Like ultimately that is what a dragon is. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and we need to start with that endpoint before I presume <laughs> to discuss in any way what dragons meant to her. Because I can only really talk about what they mean to me through her, what her dragons have meant to me. Um, dragons never lie, for one thing. I mean, they're very closely bound up in the language, in the word magic of Earthsea. Magic words are a very old idea, that, that names have power, that words have power. And the idea that there is a kind of language that is so close to the world that the world has to listen to it. I mean, I mean, at least in, a, in Christian and Jewish scholarship, it's usually referred to as an Adamic language. The, the name Adam, the, the names Adam gave to everything in the garden, that sort of mythic first word that that thing has to respond to from that moment forward. So that sort of fixed thing, that idea, that mythology of an Adamic language um, and the sort of abracadabraness that we've always, we've always fantasized about being able to say a thing and make it happen. And we've always worried about saying a bad thing and making that happen too, um, about invoking invoking the future, invoking dangers, invoking possibilities, um, saying this is true, and then it becomes true. And imagine a language in which it is impossible to lie. That's the language dragons speak. But it's also, she writes so beautifully about the paradox of that, especially just in classrooms especially in classrooms with a, a wise wizard instructor saying, okay, what does it mean to actually name a thing? And to mean, to mean this rock and not all rocks when you say rock, what is, with what kind, of, what kind of specificity is required? The way that language actually works is in its imprecision, that by the mutation, the mutation of language and the mutation of meaning and the accidental random mutations of unintended consequences and and metaphors that's how language works that's the only way it can possibly work it makes me think also of you saying that no one can understand a dragon juxtaposed alongside a dragon only speaks the truth that a dragon is true is and truthful and yet unknowable that there seems to be some um, something happening there that I think mm. is important, <laughs> though I can't articulate it. Let's work on that. Maybe we can. Um, and getting to her question, I mean, why the essay, the essay that she wrote, why are Americans afraid of dragons? And at the time, I mean, she talked about a bunch of things in that essay, but mostly about Puritanism, about a Puritan strain of American thought and a particularly Puritan ethic. And in that we get the paradox of this is, this is silly and it's dangerous. The way right. music and dancing is silly and dangerous. These flights of fancy are, are ridiculous and nonsensical and they're both meaningless and they mean scary things. There's, they're powerless and they're powerful in a frightening way. Yeah. Um, that there's a very Puritan 
ethic and work ethic and sensibility to that. That has always been a foundational part of um, American thought and American value. So Puritans don't like dragons. Americans are afraid of dragons because, because of the strain of Puritan thought. That's what she set out at the time. This makes my theater history brain buzz in a particular way because Puritans in England gearing up to cross the Atlantic, but what, what they were doing back home were a lot of things, including hating theater, constantly trying to outlaw theater and theatrical practice, performance, art forms in, in, in any form whatsoever. And answers to that keep cropping up in Shakespeare, most directly in his two most fantastical plays. You see the ans an answer to both the charge that this is silly and that this is dangerous in both Midsummer Night's Dream and The Tempest. Mm. And in Midsummer, you know, it ends with Puck basically agreeing. It's like, you're right. This is fun. This is a silly daydream that we all had that doesn't mean anything. It's not a big deal. Please stop freaking out. Please stop trying to have us arrested. And then Prospero in The Tempest answers the other charge and he also agrees his big retirement speech is you're right this is dangerous look what i can do look what i can conjure up here look what i can challenge from here look at how i can change all the rules that within this circle within this magic circle of the globe theater i make the rules and this is what i can do and you should be afraid you are right to be afraid of this. But, you know, that was what, his last play. Like he just <laughs> he got he got out of town after, <laughs> well, after that. Well, let me try to link this question that you're bringing up around this Puritan strain mm. and this thing from her essay where she tries to check out The Hobbit in the children's room. But it's not there because escapism is dangerous for or isn't good for children, which probably is code for being dangerous. You, you're on a podcast called Office Hours, and the episode was called On Fantasy and Social Theory. And in that, you said that any fantasy, even the most escapist fantasy, and even the most regressively escapist fantasy, is still social commentary. What are we imagining we are escaping from? What are we creating as our escape and what are we escaping to? All are uh, saying something about the status quo and our imaginations about where to go or where not to go from there. But you also say that the distrust of the imagination goes far back. For instance, you bring up the disagreement between Plato and Aristotle, Plato's fear of the theater, and Aristotle who thought, while dangerous, it could be cathartic. So I wondered if you could broaden the lens a little, because it sounds like you've thought a lot about this. Um, if that's true, then this fear, while certainly we're, we're living under the puritanical uh, flavor of it, would be millennia old. Yes, this goes all the way back. And this is, I mean, this is one of my favorite strains of, um, of studying theater history, especially, I mean, as an undergrad doing theater, and just looking around for a justification, <laughs> like a sense that this is something worth doing. 
that this is silly but valuable. I mean, we're standing on platforms playing make believe while other people watch. This is this is a ridiculous thing to do. This is what are we what are we even doing and why are we doing it? And I found tremendous validation and pride really in how many people have tried so hard to stop us from doing this for so long. And with Plato and Aristotle, I mean, that Plato, when, when he wanted to kick all the poets out of his imagined perfect republic, um, that also meant playwrights. He meant poets, but I mean, po plays were written in verse because it's easier to learn your lines. I mean, it's the, you know, the basic, the mechanics of sound and sense and, and orality and what makes, what makes language stick. I mean, Ursula's definition of poetry, um, if I'm getting, was a patterned intensity of language. And that patterned intensity of language just makes it easier to learn your lines as an actor. So the, the plays were also poetry and Plato thought they were dangerous and he thought they were silly because it's the same, it's the same thing. This is silly and meaningless and also means too much and it's scary and it needs to go away. And Aristotle defends it. Plato thought you watch a play about Hercules going, flying into a violent rage, then everyone's going to fly into a violent rage. This is going to be directly contagious, which is still a common fear <laughs> that, um, especially when it comes to children's literature, that there is a, um, a book about something will teach children to do that thing. Well, that's interesting because I was listening to a speech by China Mievel about what he called Gothic Marxism. Where he was looking for uh, a surrealism, a Marxist surrealism, rather than sort of a, a literal um, social realism. And in that talk, he recounts the story of Nadia Krupskaya, who is Lenin's widow, who was apparently a vital figure in the history of the Soviet literary culture. And she had a stern critique that she gave of a particular Russian children's story called The Crocodile, claiming that that story was bourgeois because it was guilty of distorting the facts about animals and plants. It was unfit for children because crocodiles do not, in fact, walk on two legs or smoke cigarettes, which I thought was amazing. Um, and also, I it feels like very connected to our contemporary moment in so many ways. Mm -hmm. But it seems like you've taken this suspicion, whether it's, Puritan slash American, Russian, Soviet, or Greek um, antiquity into the world of Goblin Secrets, a world that for us, when we begin your debut novel, is quite fantastical in setting. And yet it takes place in a city where theater and theatrical performance and the wearing of masks is outlawed. Uh, the government is threatened by the notion of an actor playing an expert of some sort in another field, as if the actor would be denigrating the people who are doing this thing for real by being mistaken for these people. Uh, a, a very literal, uh, reductive fear. So I would love it if you could read, um, introduce us to and read just a little excerpt from The Goblin Secrets, which is a scene when uh, the police are, are coming to a uh, illicit performance. Of course. Ah, there's a thing I want to tell you, but I think I should tell 
I think I should tell you afterwards rather than beforehand. I'm just going to launch right in. This is approximately a third of the way through the book, but a flashback. The alehouse became very quiet. Everyone put down their mugs and their plates. The captain of the guard stepped onto a stool and then onto a table. The patrons whose table it was quickly moved their food out of his way. The captain unrolled a parchment, cleared his throat, and read from it. It is not lawful to wear masks in Zombay. A bard sailor has learned his skill and craft, but an actor may wear a mask and mimic his manner without any such skills. If an actor tried to steer a barge, he would run it aground. The actors laughed. Probably, one of them said. A guard has earned the right to wear a sword, the captain continued, through service and sacrifice. An actor cheapens that right by wearing a mask and swinging swords for show. No one laughed. One of the actors was playing a guard. Wide wooden gears protruded from the actor's mask where the eyes should be. The small glass gears of the captain's eyes rotated in short, ticking increments as he read. It is a great honor to be an alderman. An actor can siphon away this honor by wearing masks and robes to mimic the outward show of their office. Therefore, by order of the Lord Mayor of Alzombay, the business of plays will cease. Players are liars. Citizens may not be players and must not pretend to be other than they are. The rest of the guard arrested each actor and led them away from the makeshift stage. Rowan still wore his mask and the mask was grinning. Roni couldn't see what his brother's face was doing underneath. Been listening to William Alexander read from Goblin Secrets. Okay, the thing I really want to tell you that and geek out about uh, from that passage in particular, as it relates to this conversation, um, is that those concerns were directly lifted from um, Puritan rhetoric against theater, against Elizabethan theater, and some of the fascinating laws that were in place at the time. Um, it was illegal to carry a sword unless you were gentry. Um, unless you were nobility, you could not wear a sword. But there was a special dispensation for actors, that actors were allowed to have swords and to know how to use them in order to have exciting sword fights on stage. And it was illegal to wear silk, that the material itself, the fabric itself was reserved for nobility, unless you were an actor. And most of their costumes, when they were portraying nobility, um, were cast-offs. They were, they, they were the actual clothes of kings and queens and dukes and duchesses and and they got donated to the theater the queen doesn't want someone playing a queen on stage looking like hell um you know right. they want they want them to look good yeah. and actors actors were the were the bottom of the social ladder i mean they had no they had no cachet they had no social authority they were they were the least respectable members of English society, and yet they were one of the very few members of English society who had access to the queen. They're, they're going and putting on plays at the palace. So that, that paradox, that they are the least respectable, 
And they're just about the only people who can talk to the most respectable. It makes me think of jesters too, um, mm. that they're not, I don't think they're respected, but they're certainly desired. And there's some sort of like attraction to having them speak the unspeakable truth about you. And yet the desire also to eradicate it at the same time, you're in this very precarious position, very deep within the inner chamber of power. Exactly. The role of the fool. The role of the fool is to speak the truth, but he's wearing bells. He's silly. He's silly and he's dangerous. And that's that role, like the whole profession had that role. And this paradox of like, they know how to use swords and they wear silk. And that's dangerous. That undermines all of it, all of the class stratification, um, all of the, the sense of order that the society is built on is, is undermined by the theater. And the Puritans hated that. The, the, the idea of falsehood, of impersonation, of hitting a little too close to home, the prohibition against women performing leads to men taking on the role of women. And so suddenly this restrictive, regressive law undermines gender roles entirely. And so just the, just the chaos magic of that is fun and struck my brain in a particular way, especially while studying theater history and seeking justification, seeking like a sense that this, this isn't, this isn't important despite being silly. Right. No, that's a great segue for what I want to talk about now, because I think from the beginning, I mean, she's not always writing about it in the same way or rooted in Puritanism as she does in this, this essay from 50 years ago. But throughout her career, she's re-asking this question around this fear of the imagination. She defends the imagination with a complex move, I think, because she defends fantasy, not by distinguishing it from quote-unquote kitty lit, and she defends children's literature on its own terms but she also isn't afraid of linking fantasy and children, despite the way that very link has been weaponized against both. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the way she connects the two elevates the importance of both. Uh, for instance, when she says, by imagination, I mean the free play of the mind, both intellectual and sensory. By play, I mean recreation, recreation, the recombination of what is known into what is new. By free, I mean that the action is done without an immediate object of profit, spontaneously. That does not mean, however, that there may not be a purpose behind the free play of the mind, a goal. And the goal may be a very serious object indeed. Children's imaginative play is clearly a practicing at the acts and emotions of adulthood. A child who did not play would not become mature. As for the free play of an adult mind, its result may be war and peace or the theory of relativity. But you also see this argument reappear regularly throughout her half century of writing in various compelling ways. As just one example, 
I'm going to play a brief reading by Ursula from the very beginning of her speech called The Operating Instructions, which is collected in her essay collection, Words Are My Matter, from Small Beer Press. And she, she reads this opening when we, we talked about this book for the show. Um, so this is with her beginning with an imagination of a, of a society that actually valued the imaginative. The Operating Instructions A poet has been appointed ambassador. A playwright is elected president. Construction workers stand in line with office managers to buy a new novel. Adults seek moral guidance and intellectual challenge in stories about warrior monkeys, one-eyed giants, and crazy knights who fight windmills. Literacy is considered a beginning, not an end. Well, maybe in some other country, but not this one. In America, the imagination is generally looked on as something that might be useful when the TV is out of order. Poetry and plays have no relation to practical politics. Novels are for students, housewives, and other people who don't work. Fantasy is for children and primitive peoples. Literacy is so you can read the operating instructions. I think the imagination is the single most useful tool mankind possesses. It beats the opposable thumb. I can imagine living without my thumbs, but not without my imagination. I have a question that follows this, but I'm curious if any thoughts come up for you. I mean, the thing that came up for me about the thing that I read right before this was how you cannot become mature without play. Um, and that we usually put those in opposition to each other, which goes back to this notion of machurismo. But um, what happens if to be mature is to play? Mm-hmm. And that, that sense of play creates new possibilities. I mean, she brings up Einstein. Like, what a ridiculous idea. What if, time, like, sit around in an imaginary elevator and wonder if time isn't a constant. Like, that's <laughs> right. That's silly and changed everything. Yeah, that, that struck me as well. And also, I mean, just listening to her voice, it's like Ursula in that mode of wise and affectionate grumpiness, just that, that sort of best possible curmudgeonly mode. And the, and the wit and affection that comes with it. It isn't misanthropic, but it's so, so warmly and wonderfully grumpy yeah. <laughs> about yeah. this. I just, um, I, lo- I love that mode. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's, um, let's take the aura of that reading and, and talk about two pieces that you wanted to highlight. Uh, one was the intro to the Tales of Earthsea, uh, which is the collection of short fiction that makes up the fifth book in the six-book series, and a later essay from her last essay collection, No Time to Spare, called It Doesn't Have to Be the Way It Is. When I read both of them, I notice a difference in the way she situates fantasy, one that seems more familiar 
but nevertheless plants a seed of subversion within it. And one that is, I think, more openly counterintuitive and subversive. In the, in the first, um, in the Tales of Earthsea intro, she says, We cherish the old stories for their changelessness. Arthur dreams eternally in Avalon. Bilbo can go there and back again. And there is always the beloved, familiar Shire. Don Quixote sets out forever to kill a windmill. So people turn to the realms of fantasy for stability, ancient truths, immutable simplicities. We know a dozen different Arthurs now, all of them true. The Shire changed irrevocably even in Bilbo's lifetime. Don Quixote went riding out to Argentina and met Jorge Luis Borges there. Plus c'est la même chose, plus ça change. And she continues by saying, I think somewhat slyly, as an intro to these stories. Um, so these are reports of my explorations and discoveries, tales from Earthsea for those who have liked or think they might like the place and who are willing to accept these hypotheses. Things change. Authors and wizards are not always to be trusted. Nobody can explain a dragon. So in this, she sets up the traditional sense of fantasy as returning to a mythical before, which is perhaps a conservative impulse. But then she talks about how all these eternal places do indeed change, just as she is warning us that she has changed the world she created in the first three books of Earthsea. And perhaps she's changed these, this world in the first three books because she herself has changed um, that there is a going forward even when we're going back. But in the second, much later piece, it doesn't have to be the way it is. I think she takes it further. Uh, much of the way she frames fantasy here, at least to me, feels more the way we more familiarly see science fiction framed, where she's more in the f foregrounding and upending of the stereotypes of fantasy. So I was hoping maybe you could talk to us about why you picked this essay, this, this late essay, uh, what compels you about it, and, and maybe speak to it in light of, of um, the, the tales of Ursi as well. Okay. I'm just trying to tame my brain because it ran in six different directions over the course of the question. I mean, one thing that I tripped over was um, just bringing up Borges and, and thinking about Pierre Menard. I mean, thinking about the essay, the short story pretending to be an essay about a fictional contemporary French author who decides to rewrite Don Quixote word for word. <laughs> and, and how, and, and then that that's too easy. But the, the, the jokes throughout that of like how, just that how the story changes in context. I mean, how the same thing means something new. Um, in in a new context, and Ursula's introduction that the you know we think we're go we think we're going back to these eternal verities and saying yay monarchy is great that these fairy tale tropes that there is a conservative impulse to grounding ourselves in the stories that we've always told, um, but that double move that you identify of acknowledging how things shift, even when not a word of them changes. 
And the rhetoric that she uses, the narrative rhetoric to return to Earthsea is amazing. And none of it contradicts the original trilogy, but things that are not examined in the original trilogy or, or are presented without comment are recontextualized. I mean, the first book has lines like, you know, it brings up folkloric misogyny, sayings like weak and wicked as women's magic. The magic is strictly gendered and seems very essentialist in a, in a law in the universe sort of, a law of the universe sort of way. And when these things are presented as eternal, the later stories see them as historical. That no, this isn't, this isn't just the way it is because that's the nature of the universe. Decisions were made and actions were taken to make it this way. It didn't have to be this way. And getting stories, getting new stories and none of it contradicts what came before. None of it says that the previous book was, was lying. None of it undermines the earlier telling, but the ways that it complicates it are remarkable and have as much insight into the nature of history as into the nature of fantasy, which is also interesting from a censorship point of view, since at the moment, the fights in school boards and school libraries are um, more explicitly about history than about fantasy, um, though arguably much of it is the same fight that we've been having. And I'm still, okay, before I get to, before I get to the second essay, there are still ways that my brain really wants to tie this back to your earlier questions of just what did dragons mean to her? Which is unanswerable. No one can explain a dragon. Um, I'm very much looking forward to Kelly Barnhill's new novel. I think the title is When, Women's, when Women Were Dragons. And the, the ending of Tehanu knocked a lot of people off kilter when a child becomes a dragon. But throughout this conversation, we've been identifying the ways that she connected children and the perspective of children and the needs of children and the narratives that children require and demand and can make use of. Um, we've been talking about children and fantasy throughout. And when that book when the climax of that book, at the time, she called it the last book of Earthsea. And of course it wasn't, but how, how she chose to end it at the time when she thought it was an ending was this, this girl is also a dragon. Right. And I will not explain that. You must simply accept that it is the case. I mean, in putting dragons in opposition to Puritans, there's, I think, a facile temptation to get all Freudian with it and to, to think of a dragon as a kind of id, as a kind of return of the repressed, as a, a sort of subconscious backlash. But that would be horribly reductive. And dragons themselves, as she wrote about them, are so much more than, than impulse and id. Though some of the same sense of like those who deny dragons are eaten by them. Um, There's another one of her oft-repeated quotes on the topic, eaten by them from within. 
that there is something that we repress that will consume us. And that one shape we can give to that is a dragon. And that this is both playful and powerful and in its way, very, very serious. Yeah. I love the way you just put that. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) So, Oh, and the one one other thing, one other thing. I mean, I mean, you mentioned we didn't really dive into oral traditions much, but there is some of that as well. Then in the, I mean, and just going back to the very first paragraph of the very first book of this saga, and the word dragon lord, and and I love that. I've always loved that bit where dragon lord implies mastery, and dragons have no masters, but that there is an interplay between narrative traditions, between the respective authority of oral and written traditions. And um, Thomas King, um, the, the novelist, Cherokee novelist, um, his, his collection of speeches that was published as a slim volume, The Truth About Stories, uh, he, called, he called this interfusional, mm. that ways in which not just the subject matter, but the, the, the rhetorics of oral and literate narrative traditions and modes of thought and structure, that the ways, the ways that they can interact and combine um, in important interfusional ways and that they're important, the survival and the stories of survival in that and of emancipation in that. Um, I mean, he talked about it in indigenous literature. I intuit something of that in the rhetorics that Le Guin uses as well, and the overlaps and the combinations and the ways that she can make different modes of knowing talk to each other, and the ways that quite possibly fantasy is the only thing that can do this, that to get incompatible worldviews talking to each other um Mm. it does this all the time that i mean and we do this all the time like for instance like nobody believes in luck we know better yeah i mean there's a book on the topic and doctors every doctor i know is constantly saying bad things happen to good people to just discuss the randomness of medical misfortune um but it never feels that way it never, it's like, what, what, what did I do to deserve this? Or what, what we, we make meaning in retrospect, but we expect meaning beforehand. Um, fantasy stories are one of the only ways we can, for example, reconcile simultaneous belief in fate and in luck, in, in destiny and in randomness. Like those are incompatible, but we carry them all the time. That interfusional relationship between worldviews is something Ursula was really, really good at and could similarly overlap, untangle, reconcile, maintain open communication with adulthood and childhood in any and every sphere that insisted on keeping those things separate. Well, let's let's hear the... um the paragraph you picked from the later essay, it doesn't have to be the way it is. And then 
follow that with the, the quote that you also found of Joanna Russ about science fiction um, as sort of a lead into something I want to ask you. Let's, okay. And as you say, this is, this is something she was always talking about. And this is how she chose to talk about it towards the very end of her life and career from the collection, No Time to Spare. It doesn't have to be the way it is, is a playful statement made in the context of fiction with no claim to being real, yet it is a subversive statement. And subversion doesn't suit people who, feeling their adjustment to life has been successful, want things to go on just as they are. Or people who need support from authority, assuring them that things are as they have to be. Fantasy not only asks, what if things didn't go on just as they do, but demonstrates what they might be like if they went otherwise, thus gnawing at the very foundation of the belief that things have to be the way they are. Let's hear the Joanna Russ uh, science fiction quote as well. I believe this is from What Are We Fighting For? I began reading science fiction in the 1950s and got from it a message that didn't exist anywhere else than in my world. Explicit sometimes in the detachable ideas, implicit in the gimmicks, peeking out from behind often intolerably class bigoted, racist and sexist characterizations, somehow surviving the usual, America, the empire is good plots most fully expressed in these strange life forms and strange, strange, wonderfully strange landscapes was the message. Things can be really different. These, are, these feel like very kindred statements to me. And yet it feels also like Russ's reinscribing what I think many people think of sci-fi as progressive and liberatory, whereas I feel like Le Guin saying something similar but saying it about fantasy is complicating what we what someone might think of fantasy as being more conservative, even nostalgic. But it's also certainly true that a lot of sci-fi is conservative about discovery, conquest, and colonization or about resource extraction in space from the moon or an asteroid or elsewhere to, to maintain our dominant position on Earth as a species. And fantasy has all sorts of subversive strains. Fairy tales like come to mind first as something that regularly violates norms and explores taboos. But also in, in Le Guin's essay, Why Kids Want Fantasy or Be Careful What You Eat, she says... It may be that the greatest fictional legacy of the 20th century, from Kafka to Borges, from Tolkien to Saramago, will turn out to be, well, call it what you will, but realism it ain't. Um, if, we, if we put aside Tolkien here, um, certainly no one thinks of Kafka, Borges, and Saramago as conservative. Perhaps this notion, it doesn't have to be the way it is, is really the starting point for both the best science fiction and the best fantasy. 
Um, and I think that you could argue that a lot of Le Guin sci-fi worlds are in many ways actually fantasy stories too. Like I think also of your story, The House on the Moon, which is a mashup of uh, space travel and medieval castles. But I wondered if you had any thoughts about her reorientation of fantasy um, with language similar to Russ's, but as a way to complicate fantasy. So many thoughts. And, and first, just that very, very simple one, the defamiliarization, the gnawing at the foundation of the assumptions that things are the way they are. And this, is, this has always been my discomfort with realism, that, that at least by my reading, realism has always communicated to me an implicit assumption that things have to be the way they are, that these are the boundaries of the real. This is this is this is what we can imagine and this is the most important the most important thing that we can do is to excavate as fully as possible what we already know to be definitely the case and that has always bugged me as inherently conservative as inscribing an unnecessary border and an unnecessary boundary around what's possible um and what either what to strive for or what to worry about um, what, what to expect. I have always felt uncomfortable with realism in this way. And I hope it's true because, you know, you look back on a lot of the, the, the stories you grew up on and sometimes you shudder and think, Ugh. um, and you know, there's the classic Star Trek episodes that we love. And then there's the ones that are deeply, deeply painful, um, and hilarious. So it is this uh, redemptive idea that Russ brings up that even when, even when the story seems utterly regressive, the story that it's telling is a story of outright domination and brutality, um, that simply just the imaginative exercise of saying, no, be somewhere else. The rules work differently there. Like, look, purple trees. Right. That all by itself is not, it's not an end. It's not, yay, we can imagine anything now. Um, but as a beginning, as a beginning, as a step towards elasticity, it becomes possible to question other things. Wh what if time isn't a constant? What if patriarchy isn't a constant? Right. Well, I've saved the, the essay I most want to talk about with you for last, uh, the critics, the monsters, and the fantasists, because I think it unites not only a lot of the things we've already talked about, but also many things about Le Guin's work we haven't talked about. Among many other things, it looks at the change of fiction with the Industrial Revolution, something she has written about a lot in many different essays and speeches. Um, before we talk about it, I want to play another clip of her reading another one of her essays that is written in the same spirit, uh, The Beast in the Book. Uh, again, this is from the, the last time that Ursula and I talked for the show. Why do most children and many adults respond both to real animals and to stories about them, fascinated by and identifying with creatures which our dominant religions and ethics consider mere objects for human use? 
no longer working with us in industrial societies, but mere raw material for our food, subjects of scientific experiments to benefit us, entertaining curiosities of the zoo and the TV nature program, pets are kept to improve our psychological health. Perhaps we give animal stories to children and encourage their interest in animals because we see children as inferior, mentally primitive, not yet fully human. So we see pets and zoos and animal stories as, quote, natural steps on the child's way up to adult exclusive humanity. Rungs on the ladder from mindless, helpless babyhood to the full glory of intellectual maturity and mastery. Ontogeny, recapitulating phylogeny in terms of the great chain of being. But what is it the kid is after? The baby, wild with excitement at the sight of a kitten. The six-year-old spelling out Peter Rabbit. The twelve-year-old weeping as she reads Black Beauty. What is it the child perceives that her whole culture denies? So before I talk about what excites me about the critics, the monsters, and the fantasists, because there's a lot in this essay, I'm curious what your reasons were for bringing it up, because this essay is, has so many things in it that I could imagine it could be entirely different than what I'm going to bring forth. I find something new in it every time I read it. Um, one of my favorite things just at first glance is the title which echoes Tolkien's The Monsters and the Critics. Tolkien's essay transformed Beowulf and how we read that story. And there was such a sense of utility to all of the scholarship, all of just the, 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 the place we put that poem was that it was a mess. It was a, a pagan poem a Christian transcription of a pagan poem that was anachronistically muddled between those two perspectives. And the best thing we could do with it is read it for like historical insight into how, how you would conduct a feast a couple thousand years ago, that it was not a poem, a saga, a story, that it had no merit as a story that we are being told and that we can still find ways to tell and retell, that it wasn't alive, which was of concern to Tolkien. He wrote his own interfusional things to see if he could make a saga and a novel talk to each other. With echoes of that, um, which he doesn't talk about much in the essay, that she is just with the title putting it in that lineage, but she is reproducing some of that some of that same re-examination. What kind of stories did we use to tell? Have we forgotten why we told them? Has our perspective on the importance of those stories become twisted and mistaken in some fundamental way? Maybe these stories were important. Maybe they still are. Yeah. I mean, I think of when you bring up the Beowulf, it makes me think of the ways in which she points out that most contemporary critics, literary critics, seem ill-equipped to be able to 
critique a fantasy work because they don't have the context from which to critique it from. Oh, that part's hilarious. The bit about yeah, like all of the examples, like yes. critique Pride and Prejudice as a Western. Right. Right. No, it's amazing and really funny. Well, sort of in that spirit, not in the funny part, but in the in the ways in which we don't know how to place this literature. Um, in 2004, when Le Guin won an award from the American Library Association, she gave a speech that she titled Cheek by Jowl, Animals in Children's Literature, which I watched on YouTube. Um, and behind her is projected a giant painting, a painting that it was, was done on bark from the state of Guerrero in Mexico. And she begins by talking about it, about the abundance of animals in it, of people living among this abundance of animals, much like you find in the first page of Earthsea, humans dwarfed by landscape, but also going through their days among chickens and goats and hawks and other animals. Um, Le Guin talks about this sort of relationship to animals and also about the different relationship we had in pre-agricultural societies as well about the animals we encountered regularly that we didn't have the same contractive cohabitation with. But, but in both cases, humans are just one kind of being among many others in a very regular way. And this has been true for almost the entire existence of humanity. Um, this is something that I bring up a lot on the show. It comes up with, with so many guests um, so for people who listen to all of my episodes, I f forgive me for bringing this up again, but, but I think about, for instance, in 1900, and this is me speaking, not Le Guin, but in 1900, 17% of land mammal biomass were wild animals and 83% were humans and livestock. Um, so already pretty imbalanced. 83% of land mammal biomass were us and our livestock, 17% wild. But in 2015, 2% 2 of land mammal biomass were wild and 98% were humans and livestock. And the livestock are not animals now that we live among and feel beholden to in any meaningful way. So even though there's this enormous amount of livestock on the planet, how often do we walk around and encounter any of them? Um, similarly, the biomass of poultry on the planet is three times higher than all the wild birds combined. Um, in this essay that you picked out, one of its threads begins with this line. Until the 18th century, imaginative fiction was fiction. Realism in fiction is a recent literary invention, not much older than the steam engine and probably related to it. And I love how she situates realism as connected to the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution and the beginnings of extractive capitalism and extractive technologies, as well as an era that sort of sets up the circumstances for the acceleration of the human population at the expense of other species, I think, though she doesn't say that outright. That's all really interesting in its own, in its own right. But when I, when I think of her saying, prior to the 18th century, all fiction was imaginative fiction, so whether we're talking about Beowulf or Don Quixote or Shakespeare or Rabelais, I, I think of what many people in literary theory circles also tie to this time period, which is the rise of the individual author, the idea of the, 
of the genius who rather than writing out of a collective and being beholden to one, creates incredible works from nothing, um, from their own self out of the ether. Uh, For instance, Foucault says, since the 18th century, the author has played the role of the regulator of the fictive, a role quite characteristic of our era of industrial and bourgeois society, of individualism and private property. So Le Guin's defense of an exploration of fantasy and children's literature, both separately and together, connects us by the way she situates realism's origins, I think, to her ecological concerns and to her anti-capitalism. Also, her desire to undermine hero narratives and restore humans to the way they were in this painting that she showed from Mexico during her talk, to restore them not as a Luddite or as a nostalgic vision of a golden age, but as she says in this essay, the truth of the non-industrial setting of so much fantasy reminds us of what we have denied, what we have exiled ourselves from. So this is where I'm, I'm going to propose and I invite your pushback because I don't know if this is a stretch, but this is my proposition. But to me, this creates a through line from her adult fiction to her children's literature, from the anarchist society and the dispossessed to Earthsea to Cat Wings, that the way she situates in history the place where realism rises and how is very serious and very playful. Love it. What do you think, Will? I find it very persuasive. Um, And this rise of realism, I'm not just thinking of the rise of the author, but also of of the reader as commuter on a train reading a magazine. Um, reading a short story, a form designed to fit the length of a train commute, and so, so concerned with modernist realism um, in the early 20th century, and in just that, like that image, and the way, the way, I mean, it transformed travel in in some very positive ways, but the, the removal, the separation from the landscape and the separation from each other changed so much about travel and about narrative. I mean, narrative is so, I mean, Benjamin's storyteller and the, the traveler, the sailor, the traveler's tales as, as one, of the, one of the primary modes of storyteller and Chaucer and just going on a trip with somebody and everybody like, we're all making a pilgrimage. Everybody tell a story. Um, that changed on a train we're separated from the landscape and we're separated from each other and we're reading a story set in somebody else's kitchen telling us that these are the limits of the real it's interesting that she says which i love in this essay realistic fiction is drawn toward anthropocentrism and fantasy away from it yeah that feels like a really wildly concise description You've also drawn a line between a distinction between monologue and dialogue that the sense of the, the sense of an author, a heroic author making a proclamation of individual genius, ignoring 
all of the things inherited to make that proclamation and all of the things still in conversation. Um, Ted Chang wrote an introduction to a comic history of science fiction where he described genres as conversations and, and set aside science fiction in his attempt to define science fiction as like, this is a conversation. These are, these are, these are the other authors I am in conversation with. And these are the things that we're talking about. And such a such a useful way to think about the permeable boundary and overlapping definitions of genres. And that sense of dialogue and community, that these are these are the other works of narrative. Um, these are the other voices that that one is in dialogue with, that one is in chorus with, that one is in community and kinship with, that in opposition to the sort of great man theory of literature and um, the worship of an individual genius. I think that was hugely important to her. And from what I have observed, it remains foundationally important to children's literature as a community, the way people who write for kids think about what we're doing and think about each other is very, very different from other circles of literary production that I have moved through. There is, um, there's a sense of community. There's a sense of mutual uplift. Uh, there's a way that we rally for each other. There's a way that we understand connection and there's a way that we understand what we're doing as dialogue rather than monologue, as something that has community and ancestry that is important to honor and the sense of audience. I mean, like poets and playwrights, we write things that are routinely read aloud. So the way, the way that what we write lives in sound is different. It is materially different and important for those who write for children because we know there's a decent likelihood that somebody, a parent, a librarian, a babysitter, um, a kid sounding things out is going to read these things out loud and give it breath. And, that's, and that has always been important. I mean, th the first line of the first chapter of Ursula's Steering the Craft is that the sound of language is where it all begins and it's what it all comes back to. That's something those of us who write for kids know and have to know that it's a part of that reception. And that sense of reception is the other quality that is, I think, a, a tremendously important facet of Ursula's work and thought and perspective that you're identifying and an important part of the field of writing for children, that there's, there is a sense of audience and respect for audience. Um, there has to be, there is someone there listening and that's not just an abstraction, right? That's not a complete removal, a, a death of the author sundering that what goes on in the mind of the, the creation and the reception of the work are not necessarily separate universes that can't touch. There has to be an awareness of audience. And that's something 
This is another large rabbit hole, but that's something perhaps absent from a great deal of American discourse. I mean, we talk about freedom of speech, but what are what about listening? What about the right to hear information that is not poisoned? That there is the discourse, public discourse is like a public well, and has it been poisoned? There are rights of listening as there are rights of speech. Mm. And and listening is an active contribution to whatever is happening when a story is told. And that understanding is inherent to writing for children and should perhaps be remembered <laughs> by everybody else in whatever kind of writing they're trying to do. I want, I want to ask one last question with you today. To stay a, a little longer with the Children of the Imaginative, I, I'm guessing... I'm pretty sure you probably know the Michael Shaban essay on the wilderness of childhood. Yeah. That fears that modern children are being robbed of unsupervised, unstructured play out in the world and where he calls childhood a branch of cartography, which I just love. Um, Mm -hmm. I was reminded of it when I was reading this essay that you suggested. Um, And so I'm going to, I'm going to read what Le Guin says again, quote, It is a fact that we as a species have lived for most of our time on earth as animals among animals, as tribes in the wilderness, as farmers, villagers, and citizens in a closely known region of farmlands and forests. Beyond the exact and intricately detailed map of local knowledge, beyond the homelands, in the blank parts of the map, lived the others, the dangerous strangers, those not in the family, those not yet known, even before they learn, if they are taught, about this small world of the long human past, most children seem to feel at home in it, and many keep an affinity for it, are drawn to it, they make maps of bits of it, Islands, valleys among the mountains, dream towns with wonderful names, dream roads that do not lead to Rome with blank spaces all around. The monstrous homogenization of our world has now almost destroyed the map, any map, by making every place on it exactly like every other and leaving no blanks, no unknown lands, a hamburger joint and a coffee shop in every block, repeated forever, no others, nothing unfamiliar, as in the Mandelbrot fractal set, the enormously large and the infinitesimally small are exactly the same, and the same leads always to the same again. There is no other, there is no escape, because there is nowhere else. I mean, this really echoes back to there is nowhere else being maybe something that realism is suggesting as you've, as you've said explicitly, but I wondered if you had any thoughts about maps and, and childhood play where there isn't a parent on the edge of the sandlot. And I'm the same generation as, as Michael Shaban, And I'm thinking about huge chunks of my day were spent 
you know, marginally in the neighborhood of where my parents were, and they only very marginally knew where I was. And much of that was living in a very bizarre alternate reality overlaid upon whatever geographical space I happened to be in. So part of my thinking about childhood play and about that kind of unstructured childhood play, something that I love and remember and love seeing whenever I am privileged to eavesdrop it on it happening is the metafictive quality, not just the playing of the game, but the creation of the game. And that creation being inside of it and outside of it at the same time, being inside a game of pretend and also being outside thinking about the rules and thinking about how it interacts and remapping, this is now that. Like even just in the living room, the floor is lava. Like familiar, popular, we're gonna you know jump from chair to couch. Most remember playing this. Um, the floor is lava now. Um, we've remapped the living room. Being outside, in a place that is not engineered in some way, such that, I mean, you can still do it. You can still be in a structured fenced in playground and decide that this is now that. You can't, you can't unmetaphor a place, but when, when the place itself is unstructured and not beholden to a particular design or to particular limitations, then mapping onto it, okay, this is now that, this is now this kind of place we are now underwater and they're in it. They're like, they're playing the game and writing the rules at the same time. And that sort of cognitive double move of being inside and outside simultaneously is astonishing to me and very, very difficult for um, often for, I find for adults to manage. Uh, and again, it puts my theater history brain in, in mind of Brechtian theater where there are these constant fourth wall breaks, these constant pauses to recontextualize or reconsider something. Um, and it can be really annoying. Like, he's, I mean, he's breaking the narrative spell. We want to be drawn into a story. And he keeps saying, ah, ah, bah, 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 don't like, wait a minute, look at this. It's like, no, I was listening to the music. I don't want to look at that. Um, so there's, there's this constant interruption, but it requires then being inside and outside the story at the same time, which was as I understand it, very much the goal um, and very much a specifically anti-fascist goal. It was a mode of theater and a mode of narrative created to resist fascism, created to, to offer the tools to break out of a sweeping narrative that can draw people, can stir people towards the unthinkably horrific. Um, and as to foster critical consciousness, wait a minute, what kind of story is this? Where is this going? Can we pause and consider that for a moment? And that technique of theatricality in English is usually translated as alienation, which, you know, gets at the, the resistance to it, the, the feeling alienated from the story and the, the sweep of the story. I came here to watch a play and you're stopping the play to make me think about something else. But I, I prefer a more literal translation of the German effect, the, the strange making effect, the effect of making strange. You think you know where all of this is going. I'm going to pause and make it strange to you. That defamiliarization that Ursula wrote about, that Joanna Russ wrote about, th there is more to this than what 
we are accustomed to recognizing and finding familiar, that a necessary tool of subversion, resistance, putting the brakes on a particular kind of narrative requires this kind of this kind of effect, the ability to make something unfamiliar to us, um, such that we no longer assume its meaning. Mm. Uh, and I do think that that's, that is directly connected to a sense of play, to like this stick is now a sword. This place is now the bottom of the ocean. Um, proceed accordingly. <laughs> well, we, we talked about us going out today with a reading of a part of Ursula's National Book Award acceptance speech from 1972 when she won it for The Farthest Shore, the third book in the Earthsea series. Um, do you want to talk about the significance of reading that and then we'll go out with some of her words? Sure. I mean, as, as we corresponded, what really strikes me about choosing this particular piece is not just not just that moment and that honor and and that she was winning it for the third book of Earthsea, but just coincidences of timing. I mean, that was 1972. That was 50 years ago. That was a half century ago from from this moment in this conversation right now. And that I stood at, I mean, metaphorically, probably not literally, but I stood at the same podium 10 years ago in 2012 that this year is the 10th anniversary of... But what's going to happen on the 11th anniversary? Exactly. <laughs> There's no way to know. <laughs> no, nobody can predict a dragon. That's right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. And just all of the layers of this, quoting that I quoted her at the podium and that I couldn't help it. I mean, I had no choice but to quote Ursula at the, po at the podium for the same award, the anniversary accidents of timing. Yeah. Um, I, I love and find significant. I mean, you've dedicated entire episodes to her ability to say something very clearly, just that crisp, clean line that without backflips and pyrotechnics and circus acts and showing off that sense of, of precision that she is saying exactly what she means to say. I don't have, I don't have a word for that. I mean, I've seen it sometimes referred to as journalistic prose that just clarity without adornments. Um, I don't think that's it though. Just no. the, the, I don't think it's journalistic prose. No, it's really not. <laughs> it's cause it's got the, the, what she calls the wave of the mind, the that deep rhythm. Yes, um, from the Virginia Woolf. Yeah, quote. Yes, and the and the Taoist clarity, that sense of clear running water. This sentence has to go here, the way water has to go downhill. That's what water does. That's what this sentence is going to do. That's a great way to put it. So that I feel like the way that everything I've spent my most of my life and career trying to articulate. And just happily stumbling around and messing with and throwing spaghetti at the wall and having a wall full of spaghetti and, and that then that she's got a window. <laughs> Look, here it is. You can just see it and you can just say it. <laughs>
I mean, I think that could describe any and every quote of hers, but especially this one, I find. Ursula K. Le Guin's National Book Award acceptance speech, 1972. We who hobnob with hobbits and tell tales about little green men are used to being dismissed as mere entertainers or sternly disapproved of as escapists. But I think perhaps the categories are changing, like the times. Sophisticated readers are accepting the fact that an improbable and unmanageable world is going to produce an improbable and hypothetical art. At this point, realism is perhaps the least adequate means of understanding or portraying the incredible realities of our existence. A scientist who creates a monster in the laboratory, a librarian in the library of Babel, a wizard unable to cast a spell, a spaceship having trouble getting to Alpha Centauri, all these may be precise and profound metaphors of the human condition. Fantasists, whether they use ancient archetypes of myth and legend or the younger ones of science and technology, may be talking as seriously as any sociologist and a good deal more directly about human life as it is lived and as it might be lived. For after all, as great scientists have said and as all children know, it is above all by the imagination that we achieve perception and compassion and hope. Thank you, Will Alexander, for being on the show today. Thank you, David Naiman, for having me on the show today. It is <laughs> my honor and privilege and delight. We've been talking to William Alexander, and you've been listening to Crafting with Ursula. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of William Alexander's work can be found at willalex.net. For the bonus audio, Will contributes an explanation of his writing exercise called Smoke, one that helps him create and develop characters that come alive on the page. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter. Learn about the potential gifts and rewards of doing so at patreon.com slash between the covers. These include everything from rare collectibles from Ursula K. Le Guin to bonus audio beyond the main conversations with everyone from Daniel Jose Older to N.K. Jemison to Ted Chang to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. Again, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. 
I'd like to thank Arwen Curry for the audio of Ursula in the introduction from the documentary Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin. William Anthony for the photograph of Ursula used in the banner. Tin House's Jacob Valla for the graphic design. Becky Kramer for publicity. And Theo Downs Le Guin for being a bottomless well of ideas and insights. Finally, the music you hear called River Song and the music in the introduction, Aaron Song, come from the collaborative album by Todd Barton and Ursula Le Guin called Music and Poetry of the Keshe. Thanks to Todd Barton for granting permission for its use. See you next month for another episode of Crafting with Ursula.